Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Last week of this Advent series, right? This Advent series that we're talking about the coming King as we look at Scripture and see how they anticipated the King and King Jesus and what all He brought when He came. So we see that the week one we looked at that the coming King, our eternal King Jesus, when He came, He brought hope, He brought peace. He brought joy. You guys know the Advent candles, they light every year where they work through these. So what's the only other one we've got to talk about? Love, right? So today we talk about love, which, yes, right? Every Sunday we talk about, if you go through Scripture, the, the, the uh, entire canon of Scripture is the greatest love story ever told. It's all throughout Scripture. You've got First uh, John 4, 8, God is love. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 13, 35, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Matthew 27, 30. Or 22, 37 through 40 says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord our God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You tell a pastor that they get to preach or that they're supposed to preach on love. And you've got this sense of like, yes, every Sunday is, is love Sunday. But then there's this kind of thing where like, well, okay, if that's true, I can almost preach whatever I want. Where do you go with it? Because love is this vast subject. I've said it before, you know, I tell my wife that I love her dearly. But you know what? I also love hot wings. Okay. So like, do I love my wife in the same sense that I love hot wings? Debatable. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So love is this, this concept, like how do we, <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble. No, there's this concept of, of <clears throat> how do we, how do we <clears throat> get a grasp on what love is. And the truth is, as followers of Christ, as Christians, we define love as the gospel, right? John 15, 13 says, there's no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is Jesus on the cross for our sins. That's how we define love. 
Now, the problem is this flies in the face of our culture because ultimately our culture doesn't define love. Like if you ask somebody, what is love? You will get the answer, well, love is love, right? Which honestly, I get the heart behind that because there's been a lot of damage caused by by love. but, But there's this sense of like that doesn't really, if we think about it critically, tell us anything about love. Like, okay, yeah, love is love. I got it. But what does that even mean? And I think that's the point behind it. By leaving love undefined, we get to define it for ourselves. So by saying love is love, this, this gives the abusive parent justification to harm their children because the way a child should show love is through obedience, right? Because love is love, and my kid, the way I define that is obedience, So when we don't have a definition of what love is, it can be extremely hurtful and damaging. Love is love can be used to justify the relationships, maybe to a caregiver that doesn't agree with your relationship, but it offers no hope, peace, or joy to a downcast brother. The point I'm making here is that when love goes undefined, it can be a tool that causes damage. Before David Bennett became a Christian, he, ha- he talks about in his book that he had incredible rage towards all Christians and sought war against Christianity of any kind because how he, as a gay man, was treated by Christians in the name of loving their God. The truth is, love carries lots of baggage in our culture. And so when you throw out the term love, even if you're talking about the fact that God is love, it can create this emotion and this barrier and heartache and pain. So when I'm going in this morning to talk about how the coming King brings us love in this Advent season, what I hope to do through this message is give some definition of what love is, because that's what we get to do in the Christmas season. We get to take a step back. We get to look at the fact that our God, our holy, infinite God chose to come down as a child, as a baby in human form, as an act of ultimate love for his people. And that's what I want to look at today. Because the truth is, when we look at Jesus, we get to see what the love of an ultimate holy God looks like. For many of us in here, Martin Luther King Jr. is a hero, right? He, the, I remember the first time in college where I uh, sat down and got to read uh, letters from Birmingham Jail. And you know, I've been taught all the things. I've been taught about his, I have a dream speech and these, and these letters, these things I learned in all, all throughout grade school. But in college, I sat down and I was like, I really want to comprehend these letters. And I just remember being so moved by his vision and his call to action and this, this idea of, and the legacy that Martin Luther King Jr. is, makes him a hero for many of us. But I was sad to learn through reading an article recently that I had never actually dove into any of MLK's family, 
right? So for instance, this article was about his dad, who the family actually called Daddy King. And I knew nothing beyond Martin Luther King Jr. And so I was like, this article goes in, is telling the story of Daddy King. And I was like, man, I want to know more about this. And he actually, I'm reading the article and moved at the, the legacy that he left, that Martin Sr. left. And he actually had a tragic life. Um, you look... The, the loss he had, we think about the nation mourning with him when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. But within a year, he actually also lost his youngest son. Um, the youngest son died in a, in a drowning accident, but the youngest son was also uh, an elite swimmer on his college swim team. So this has led many to speculate foul play in the death of his youngest son. Not long after that, a gunman actually entered their church and shot and killed uh, Daddy King's wife um, as she was playing the organ in church. So his life has over and over again been marked by the death of loved ones. His son, his youngest son, Martin Luther King Jr., and his wife, all lost unnecessary loss, so much heartache and pain. How do you move on from that? How does one person handle all of that suffering? Yet through the rest of his ministry, the witnesses, people that that were under his pastorship, the people who, who followed him as he followed Jesus, they all rave and talk about how no matter what, even after all of that suffering and loss, Daddy King never stopped proclaiming the love of Jesus. This article written by Matt Leroy, I want to quote him. He says, King, talking about King Sr., never stopped preaching the gospel of Jesus' radical love, a love that extends even to those who hate you and hurt you, a love that forgives murderers and imagines enemies as candidates for grace. I hear these stories of Martin Sr., and I instantly understand the legacy left by Dr. King Jr. You realize the background and the upbringing that King Jr. had, and all of a sudden his life makes sense. For in the son, we see what the father was like. I had no idea the kind of legacy that Daddy King had. But I knew Martin Luther King Jr. And now I see that when I was looking at Jr., I know what the father was like. In Scripture, in Luke chapter 2, the angel Gabriel comes and he says that we will call Jesus the Son of the Most High God, the most high God. It means he is infinitely other, high and holy above all else. He is utterly above and beyond us in every way. I could quote Matt Leroy again. It says that holiness ablaze and untouchable. That's the God that we serve. So if that's the case, how can we know about him? If he is so outside and above us, I think you know where I'm going. It says that Jesus was the son of the most high God. Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We can look at the son and know what the father is like. 
You want to know what God-shaped love really is? You look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus-shaped love is in the shape of Isaiah 61. There's a point in Jesus' ministry pretty early on where he walks into a temple and he walks into the temple and they're going to, to read from the scriptures. And so Jesus is the one that reads it. Somebody hands him the scroll of Isaiah and he reads Isaiah 61 uh, verses one through two. It says this, and you can actually read Luke quoting Isaiah. Jesus is reading this and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke, save a favor. This is Luke 4, 18. After Jesus reads this passage, the people are like, okay, yes, this is Isaiah. It's talking about the coming Savior. They're, they're thinking about there's going to be one day where the king is going to come and he's going to do these things. He's going to have this military power. He's going to be the one to, to set us free. He's going to heal the brokenness. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll. He hands it back and he sits down. And in, in verse uh, 21, it says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's the ultimate mic drop. Jesus is saying, this is me. You hear that and you hear the hope of freedom. You hear the hope of healing. You hear the hope of no longer being oppressed. The king that is coming is me. I'm in your presence and this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus is declaring, I have been anointed by the spirit to proclaim the good news, to set the captives free, to heal the blind. You can actually go to Isaiah 61 and read the whole passage, and there's almost 11 plus in things that the, the coming servant is going to do. And so for this morning, I'm not going through each one of them. Okay, we'd be here way too long. Okay, but you can go through and you can see 11 promises that the coming Messiah is going to fulfill. What I want to kind of do is I kind of want to sum up all of it in an illustration that see the what has happened is God has created humanity to be co-rulers with him. They're supposed to be the, working with God to create this glorious masterpiece, masterpiece as they uh, develop culture, cultivate the land, and fill the land with God's glory. When you go and you read Genesis and it says to be fruitful and multiply, by the multiplying and being fruitful, they're literally filling the world with the glory of God. It's supposed to be this beautiful picture of what's supposed to happen, but then sin enters the picture and ruins the moment, ruins the masterpiece. There's a, a famous jazz musician. I don't, I mean, I'm butchering the language this morning. Bear with me, guys. <laughs> There's this famous jazz musician. His name is Wynton Marsalis. I don't know much about jazz, but there's an article written in the Atlantic that was absolutely captivating, right? And so this, this jazz artist would go 
and he was famous. He's famous. He's really, really talented. But he would go and like go to places where he's not billed to be a part of the show. And he would just like sneak up on stage and do these secret shows all the time. So like you would go to a, a jazz bar to see this jazz performance. And whoa, there's this famous, incredibly talented jazz musician that puts on a show. And he would do this all the time. And so this author for The Atlantic, he's going and he, he's in New York. He goes into this jazz bar to work on a completely separate piece. And as he's working on it, he recognizes um, a piece being played that belongs to Marsalis. And so he's, he's like, okay, that sounds like him. It's his song. It seems like it's in his style. So he stands up and he walks a little bit closer to the stage. As he gets up there, he realizes that he's got it. He's at the place when he's doing one of these secret shows and he gets excited. And as the, as uh, the Marsalis is playing this piece, he, he gets, he's kind of building the moment. Every, the audience is there. They're captivated. They've all been drawn in. They realize that they get to be a part of one of these magical moments. And they're all there. The audience is paying attention. They're in the song and the song kind of has this crescendo finish. And so he's building to this moment. He's building to this moment of beauty, unexpected beauty. It's an incredible time. And then somebody's ringtone goes off and the it, it takes, it ruins the moment. Like sin coming in it ruins the picture. The, the audience is kind of begins to rustle and talk. They're distracted. And Marsalis actually realizes that he's lost the crowd. It becomes, there's talking and there's chaos. And he doesn't really know what to do with the situation. This is the image that we have. Sin has come in and messed up the masterpiece. But when we look at Isaiah 61 and we look at the love and the ministry of Jesus, we realize that bringing sight to the blind and setting the captives free and bringing in the year of the Lord, this is all restorative love. It's going out to the broken, it's going out to the the, uh, outcast, and it's restoring, it's restoration love. That is what love looks like in the shape of Isaiah 61. So let's go back to our story. Marsalis doesn't know what to do in this moment, but he's extremely skilled. So he begins to kind of match the tones of the ringtone, right? He plays the ringtone on stage, and the crowd kind of chuckles, like, oh, man, he's played the ringtone. And they kind of laugh, but then he plays the ringtone again, and he adds a couple little bits here and there, and then he plays it a third time, And he adds the song he was playing before the ringtone went off. And before you know it, once again, the audience is gripped. They're in that moment. The magic restored. That's the the line that the writer of this article actually uses. Magic gone, magic restored. And the the congregation, I keep wanting to say the congregation, the crowd, the crowd got that moment. They got that restoration moment. Jesus enters the scene with a restorative love that looks at the broken, looks at the captives, looks at the lame, and he heals them. That is what love looks like. The energy and the excitement filled the room, just like as Jesus moves, the Holy Spirit moves with him. Jesus brings the magic back. It's a restorative love. As Jesus goes into the city, 
we see him not just read this scripture and give an empty promise, but his ministry actually looks like that. He heals the blind, the lame, the deaf. He proclaims the good news, not just to the poor, but to the rich alike and all who would listen. He sets the captives free. He sets the captives free, even the ones who didn't know they were captive. Jesus' love was shaped like Isaiah 61. It's a restorative, rebuilding love. If you go and you look at the way the Old Testament talks about the love of God, it uses this word hesed. Everybody say hesed. You didn't know you could speak Hebrew, did you? Look at that. So it uses this word hesed, which we see in Exodus 34, 6, when it says that the Lord our God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's that word hesed. Now, the reason you can open up four or five different translations and get all kinds of different ways of explaining this word, because we don't have a way of taking that meaning of that Hebrew word and putting it into English. Sometimes you see uh, steadfast love. Sometimes you see kindness. Sometimes you see loving kindness. Sometimes you see uh, loyal or loyal love. There's, I mean, there's a vast array of ways that they translate this word, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to communicate this concept that we don't really have the language to communicate in English. This hesed word is like a loyal love. It's loyalty, but it's not loyalty just for out of fear or the sake of being loyalty, but it's driven by intimate love. We see it used in a few different stories. If you if you uh, know the story of Ruth, right? Ruth's husband dies, and so now she she has the chance to go back to her own town, find another husband, survive and live. But instead, she chooses to go with Naomi, her mother-in-law. She has no reason that she should go with her. She has no more ties. But she instead she goes with her. She intentionally purposefully enters poverty for the sake of Naomi. She's going to do this because of her hesed for Naomi. She's honored because of her hesed for Naomi. You see it in the story of David. David has been anointed by Samuel. He knows he's the next king. Everybody knows he's the next king. But Saul, the current king, has lost his mind. All right, Saul, the current king, is now trying to kill David out of jealousy. Constantly, relentlessly chasing after, searching for David in order to kill him. David is running and hiding for his life. And there's one point where, where David and his men are actually hiding in a cave. And Saul walks into this cave to relieve himself. And David doesn't know that David is there. Even, David even reaches out and cuts a hem of his robe. Like David has the opportunity to pay Saul back. He has the opportunity to get away from this man, to, to end this man's life that's trying to kill him. David knows he's the next king. That If Saul dies, no big deal. David's the one taking over. But David refuses to kill Saul. He actually regrets even cutting the hymn. He says, far be it for me in Yahweh that I would do this thing to my Lord, to Yahweh's anointed one by stretching out my hand against him. David is honored by God for his hesed to Saul. This loyal love, not driven by fear, not driven because the other person deserves it, but just because of who they are. Jesus' birth is God's has said to humanity. Over and over again, we have failed him. 
Over and over again, just like our parents, Adam and Eve, we choose self over God. Over and over again, we have been unfaithful. But we serve a God that is faithful even when we are faithless. We serve a God who stepped down out of heaven and his loyal love for us. We see that God in the Old Testament makes these covenants, makes these promises with Abraham and David. And when they make these promises, God is described as hesed, having this loyal love for his creation, for these people that he's made promises to. And even though they abandon him and they turn their back on him, he is faithful to deliver them. So on Christmas, when we think about what is the love of God, we see a God who sees us broken and hurting. We see people who are stiff-necked people who have turned their back on him, and he doesn't leave us to rot in our own filth, but instead he enters that filth and experiences what it means to be human because he has a loyal love for us. And what does that loyal love look like? It looks like Jesus being born in a dirty stable, surrounded by animals laid in a manger, and being like us. And Jesus continues to live that out in Isaiah 61. We see that love looks like Jesus, a love that does not hold anything against us, a love that does not hold anything against those who have hurt him or will hurt them, hurt him. He gives it all, dying on a cross, that they might be forgiven. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but one of the beautiful parts about this is the scripture that Jesus reads in Isaiah 61 says that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to do this ministry. If you follow the story, there's a point in Acts where humanity becomes anointed by the Holy Spirit. Spirit, Jesus shows us what true humanity is. This said love, this loyal love that doesn't hold anything against anybody, that loves them relentlessly, but doesn't leave them in their mess. Jesus doesn't leave us in our mess. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to be healed, to be made new, and to live a life that looks just like Jesus. The same way the Spirit anointed him, the Spirit anoints us. The greatest love story ever told, we can read about it in our scripture. Jesus shows us this when he comes as a baby and we celebrate on Christmas. It's a faithful love when we are faithless. It's a steadfast when we wander. It lays down its life for others. It reaches out to those least deserving. It heals brokenness. God is love. And this love looks like Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 61. And we are given the ability to love just like Jesus has loved us. He is our King, our Savior, and our Lord. Let us praise his holy name and live Jesus-shaped lives and show our world what love really looks like. Let's pray.